Welcome to Take Up and Read, a bite-sized Bible study podcast on the Sunday Catholic Mass readings. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. This Sunday is the second Sunday of Lent in year C. Remember that the Old Testament readings during Lent are not specifically chosen to harmonize with the Gospel readings. Instead, the first readings highlight important events in salvation history, hearkening back to the early catechumenate when candidates would undergo an intense catechesis in the basics of the faith in preparation for baptism at Easter. Our first reading is Genesis 15, verses 5 through 12 and 17 through 18, a dramatic and beautiful moment in Scripture when Abram, later called Abraham, makes a covenant with God. The mysterious scene described here is an ancient Near Eastern covenant-making rite, which often took place in a religious, liturgical context. The animals would be split in two, with both parties walking through the midst of the carcasses. The insinuation here is that if either party violates the covenant, then let their fate be like the animals they have just passed through. There is an element of this in the Israelite practice of shedding blood in circumcision as well, which was the sign of belonging to the Old Testament covenant. The ceremony also typically included an oath, which the Lord pronounces in verse 18. To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates. The Lord walks between the animals as a smoking firepot and a flaming torch, evoking the pillar of fire which later guided the Israelites through the desert in Exodus. See Exodus 13, verses 21 and 22. The animals that Abram kills for the covenant ritual are among those later marked out for sacrifice in the book of Leviticus. Abram does not cut the birds, just as the Levitical priests will do when offering them as sacrifices. See Leviticus 1, verse 17. In verse 12 here, Abram enters a deep sleep, reminiscent of the deep sleep of Adam in Genesis 2, verse 21 as well as the sleepiness of Peter, James, and John in this Sunday's Gospel. All of these instances precede a special visitation by the Lord, where the subject is, in a certain sense, overcome by the greatness of God. The Wadi of Egypt refers to either an eastern branch of the Nile River in Egypt, or the Wadi el-Arish, which extends across the Sinai Desert. The Euphrates River extends across modern-day Syria and Iraq. At the height of its power under King Solomon, the United Kingdom of Israel reached these ideal borders. See 1 Kings 4, verse 21. A covenant is more than a contract. It creates a a kinship bond between the parties. That is why we call a marriage a covenant, but finance the purchase of a car or a home through a contract. A higher level relationship is now at stake in a covenant, as persons, and not goods, are exchanged. The Lord's covenant with Abram is the beginning of a series of covenants made with Abram's descendants, culminating in the universal and everlasting covenant in Christ's blood. The covenant entered into in this first reading is known in biblical scholarship as a grant-type covenant, where a superior party, God, binds himself to an inferior, Abram, in return for a prior good service rendered, namely Abram's faith. The superior party, God, accepts all responsibility for the covenant, not imposing any obligations on the inferior, Abram. For this reason, many figures throughout the Bible will refer to this covenant in their prayers to the Lord, 
asking him to remember his covenant with Abram despite the failings of his descendants. Verse 6 here, Abram put his faith in the Lord, who credited it to him as an act of righteousness, is famously cited by St. Paul in Romans 4 verse 3 when discussing circumcision and works of the Jewish law. Our reception of the Eucharist at Mass can be understood as our renewed commitment to the new covenant of Jesus. In reciting the creed and pronouncing Amen at the moment of our reception, we bind ourselves literally to Jesus, the one who has shed his blood and who is the head of his body, the Church. This therefore entails our acceptance of all that the Church believes and teaches to be true. On the contrary, in St. Paul's words, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. See 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27-29. through 29. For more on the progressively expansive covenants throughout the Bible, check out Dr. Scott Hahn's A Father Who Keeps His Promises. If you are willing to tackle a more academic volume, try his book, Kinship by Covenant. Our psalm this Sunday is Psalm 27, a psalm of confidence in the Lord written by King David. The first and third stanzas here are particularly relevant to this Sunday's gospel. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? And your presence, O Lord, I seek. Hide not your face from me. Peter, John, and James see the face of the Lord in Jesus at a particularly striking way at his transfiguration and grow fearful upon entering the glory cloud of the Lord and hearing his voice. This Sunday's second reading is Philippians 3, verse 17, through chapter 4, verse 1, St. Paul's exhortation to resist the temptations of the world and place faith and hope in Jesus, an apt theme for Lent. In verse 18, Paul warns of enemies of the cross of Christ, which would seem to be other Christians who live in a worldly manner. Verse 21 fits in well with our gospel account of the transfiguration. He will change our lowly body to conform with his glorified body by the power that enables him also to bring all things into subjection to himself. The Catechism of the Catholic Church cites this verse when discussing the resurrection of the dead. See paragraph 999. Our gospel this Sunday is Luke chapter 9 verse 28 through 36 the famous scene of the transfiguration of Jesus, which is read from one of the Gospels each year on the, Sunday, on the second Sunday of Lent. The compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church summarizes the importance of the transfiguration. Above all, the transfiguration shows forth the Trinity, the Father in the voice, the Son in the man Jesus, the Spirit in the shining cloud. Speaking with Moses and Elijah about his departure, Jesus reveals that his glory comes by way of the cross, and he anticipates his resurrection and his glorious coming, which will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body. The compendium goes on to quote the Byzantine Kentakian hymn for the Feast of the Transfiguration. You were transfigured on the mountain, and your disciples, as much as they were capable of it, beheld your glory. O Christ our God, so that when they should see you crucified, they would understand that your passion was voluntary, and proclaim to the world that you truly are the splendor of the Father. While the New Testament does not explicitly specify the location, Christian tradition places a transfiguration on Mount Tabor, five miles east of Nazareth in Lower Galilee. There is a lot going on in this scene, wherein Jesus gives Peter and the brothers James and John 
a glimpse of his glory in anticipation of shock that will come with his passion. For us, it is an anticipation of our hope for heavenly reward, when the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. See Matthew 13, verse 43. Note that this is the James known as the Greater, the son of Zebedee and Salome. These three apostles made up a kind of inner circle within the twelve, and ascend the mountain with Jesus just as Moses once ascended Mount Sinai with his brother Aaron and Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu. Peter, James, and John were the first disciples called by Jesus and the only ones Jesus allowed inside the house when he brought Jairus' daughter back to life. See Luke chapter 8 verse 51. The appearance of Moses and Elijah is very significant here. Moses is the great lawgiver of the Old Testament, while Elijah is its greatest prophet. In one sense, then, they embody the law and the prophets, which was shorthand in Jesus' day for the entire Old Testament. In dramatic fashion, the old and the new converse, each shedding light upon the other. Moreover, in Malachi chapter 3, verses 22-23, through 23, the prophet delivers this oracle of the Lord. Remember the law of Moses my servant, whom I charged at Horeb with statutes and ordinances for all Israel. Now I am sending to you Elijah the prophet, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and terrible day. This is rather literally fulfilled in the transfiguration. It is also important that Moses and Elijah are the only two Old Testament figures said to see God, however imperfectly. See Exodus 33, verses 18 through 23 for Moses, and 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 11 through 13 for Elijah. Recall the radiant face of Moses after he descended Mount Sinai, so astonishing that he had to keep it covered. In the Transfiguration, however, Peter, James, and John see the Lord Jesus in his splendor face to face. As his clothes became dazzling white, Peter suffers the same delirium that affected the Israelites upon seeing Moses' face and beholding the Lord's glory and voice at Sinai. Another important angle here is that this scene takes place during the Jewish Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, or in Hebrew, Sukkot. The feast is elaborated in Leviticus chapter 23. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. Each native-born Israelite shall dwell in booths, that your descendants may realize that when I led the Israelites out of Egypt, I made them dwell in booths. See verses 42 through 43. The purpose of the Feast of Booths was to recall the experience of the Israelites who dwelt in tents in the desert after the exodus from Egypt. This is the meaning of Peter's asking if Jesus would like him to make tents for the three men. Just as the Lord, in a certain sense, dwelt in the tabernacle in the wilderness, evinced by the presence of the glory cloud, or Shekinah, over the tabernacle. So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, manifests himself to Peter, James, and John in the midst of a cloud. Furthermore, just as a cloud covers Mount Tabor to reveal Jesus' glory in his transfiguration, so the Lord revealed his presence on Mount Sinai with a cloud in Exodus 24, verse 16. The words of God the Father here mirror his proclamation at our Lord's baptism, when he was manifest for the first time. There is also an echo here of one of Isaiah's prophecies of the suffering servant Messiah. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one with whom I am pleased. Upon him I have put my spirit. 
He shall bring forth justice to the nations. See Isaiah 42, verse 1. This identification of the Messiah with the Chosen One, the suffering servant of Isaiah, is also made by Jesus' detractors at his crucifixion. See Luke 23, verse 35. The injunction to listen to him echoes Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, of a prophet like himself who would someday come to lead the people, and who was identified with the Messiah in Jewish tradition. The text says that Moses and Elijah appeared in glory, whereas the typical destination for souls of the dead prior to the redeeming death and resurrection of Christ is known in Catholic theology as Abraham's bosom, or the limbo of the fathers. See Luke 16, verse 22, in paragraph 633 of the Catechism. We know from Scripture, however, that Elijah was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. That Moses' body was also assumed in heaven after his death is an ancient Jewish tradition that seems to be corroborated by this gospel passage. Indeed, Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 through 6 says, To this day, no one knows the place of his burial. See also Jude chapter 1, verse 9. The church has never defined the precise meaning of the term heaven in regards to Moses and Elijah prior to the coming of Christ. But if they are exceptions to a rule, perhaps it is in the way that Mary was preserved from all sin from the moment of her conception in anticipation of the redemptive sacrifice of her son. See paragraphs 491 through 492 of the Catechism. Moses and Elijah are speaking with Jesus about the exodus he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. This is a rather explicit example of new exodus imagery in the Gospels, which we have encountered before on the podcast. Just as the Israelites left Egypt and ultimately established a nation in the Promised Land, whose capital was Jerusalem, Jesus will ascend from Jerusalem at the end of Luke's Gospel and enter the heavenly Promised Land, the new Jerusalem described in the book of Revelation, see chapter 21. Where the Israelites were delivered from slavery to Egypt, the Lord Jesus delivers us from slavery to sin. That's all we have time for today. Let's conclude with the collect from this Sunday's Mass. O God, who have commanded us to listen to your beloved Son, be pleased, we pray, to nourish us inwardly by your word, that with spiritual sight made pure, we may rejoice to behold your glory. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. To learn more and find resources, visit studycatholic.com. And please tell your friends about the show and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. Thanks again, and God bless.